Part 10. Melchizedek. I have often seen Melchizedek, but never as a human being. I have always seen him as a being of another nature, as an angel, as one sent by God. I have never at any time seen any determinate dwelling place, any home, any family, any associates connected with him. I never saw him eating, drinking, or sleeping, and never did the thought occur to me that he was a mortal. He was clothed as no priest at the time on the earth, but like the angels in the heavenly Jerusalem. His robes were such as Moses, upon the command of God, afterward ordained the priestly vestments should be. I have seen Melchizedek appearing here and there, interposing and legislating the affairs of nations, as, for instance, at the celebration of victories after war, at that time waged with such cruelty. Wherever he appeared, wherever he was, he exercised an irresistible influence by his mere presence. No one opposed him, and yet he never resorted to harsh measures. Even the idolaters cheerfully accepted his decisions and acted upon his advice. He had no companion of his own nature. He was entirely alone. Sometimes he had two hired couriers. They were clothed in short white garments, and they ran on before him to announce his coming. He dismissed them when their mission was over. All that he needed, he had without trouble of acquiring. They from whom he received anything could always spare what they gave. They bestowed it upon him with joy. They regarded him with reverential fear, but esteemed themselves happy to be in his company. Although the wicked found fault with him, yet they humbled themselves in his presence. Melchizedek, that being of a higher order, was regarded by the great ones of the pagan world, those sensuous, godless men, in much the same light that an extraordinarily holy man will be looked upon at the present day, if he suddenly appeared amongst us as a stranger doing good to all around. Thus I saw Melchizedek at the court of Semiramis in Babylon, where she reigned with indescribable grandeur and magnificence. She caused immense buildings to be erected by her slaves, whom she oppressed far more severely than did Pharaoh the children of Jacob in Egypt. The most horrible idolatry was practiced among the Babylonians. Human victims were buried up to the neck in the earth, and thus offered in sacrifice. It is hardly credible to what a degree all kinds of luxury, magnificence, opulence, and the arts were carried. Semiramis also waged great wars. Her armies were composed of countless warriors, for these wars were almost always against nations off toward the east. She went not much westward. The nations toward the north were dark and sinister-looking people. As time went on, there arose in the kingdom of Semiramis a numerous people of the Semitic race. After the building of the tower, their ancestors had remained in Babylon. They lived as a little pastoral tribe under tents, raised cattle, and celebrated their religious ceremonies by night, either in an open tent or under the starry sky. Many blessings attended them. They were prosperous in all things, and their cattle was always a remarkably fine. Semiramis, the diabolical woman, resolved to exterminate this tribe. She had already destroyed a great many belonging to it. She knew from the blessing attending them that God had merciful designs over them. Therefore would she, as an instrument of the devil, oppose them. 
when the distress of these people was at its height, Melchizedek appeared. He went to Semiramis, demanded permission for them to depart, and rebuked her for her cruelty. Semiramis yielded to his desires, and he led them in different bands toward Palestine. Melchizedek dwelt in a tent near Babylon, and here he broke that bread to the good people, from which they received strength to depart. He pointed out to them here and there in Canaan places suitable for settlements, and they received from him lands of various quality. He divided them off according to their purity in order that they should not mix with others. Their names sounded like Semenin or Semenin. Melchizedek pointed out to some of them as suitable for a settlement the region which was afterward the site of the Dead Sea. But their city was destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. Semiramis received Melchizedek with great reverence. She secretly dreaded him on account of his wisdom. He appeared before her as the king of the morning star, that is, of the most distant eastern land. She fancied that he might perhaps woo her for his bride. But he spoke to her sternly, reproached her with her cruelty, and foretold to her the destruction of her pyramid at Memphis. Semiramis grew speechless from terror, and I saw the punishment that fell upon her. She became like a beast. She was for a long time penned up, and they cast to her in derision, grass and straw in a manger. Only one servant was faithful to her, and furnished her with food. She was freed from the chastisement, but she carried on her disorders anew. She came at last to a frightful end, her intestines being torn from her body. She was aged 117 years. Melchizedek came to be regarded as a prophet, as a teacher, as a being from a higher sphere, with whom all things succeeded. They were, to the people of that age, as familiar as were the angels in Abraham's time. But diabolical apparitions also were frequent, in the same way as false prophets rose up by the side of the true. The departure of the Semitic race from Babylon bears some analogy to that of the Israelites from Egypt, although the former were by no means so numerous as the latter. Of the Semites, whom Melchizedek settled in Palestine, I saw long before the coming of Abraham three men on the so-called Bread Mountain in the neighborhood of Tabor. They lived in caves. They were of a browner complexion than Abraham and were clothed in skins. They bound a great leaf on their head to protect them from the sun. Their life, modeled on that of Henoch, was a holy one. Their religion was simple, though full of mysterious signification, and they had visions and revelations which they easily interpreted. Their religion taught that God will unite himself with man. For that union they must prepare in every possible way. They also offered sacrifice. A third part of their daily allowance they exposed to the sun, either to be consumed by it or, perhaps, for the benefit of other needy creatures. That the latter was the case I also saw. These people lived quite solitary, apart from the rest of the inhabitants of the country. The latter were not yet numerous, and lived scattered here and there, in abodes built in the style of fortified tent cities. I saw those three men going through the country, digging wells, cutting down forests, and laying the foundations of subsequent cities. I saw them driving the evil spirits from the air around whole regions and banishing them to other places, to poor, swampy, foggy districts. 
I saw again that the wicked spirits prefer such wretched abodes. I often saw these men wrestling with them. At first I wondered how cities could arise where they laid stones, which so soon became overgrown. Then I had another vision in which I was shown a number of places built on these sites. For instance, Safet, Bethsaida, Nazareth, where those three men worked on the spot upon which afterwards stood the house in which the angel delivered the message to Mary, Gathifer, Sephorus, and the region near Nazareth, where Anne's house afterwards stood, Megiddo, Name, Anon, the caves of Bethlehem and Hebron. I also saw them founding Machmethet and many other places that I have now forgotten. I saw them every month assembling on this mountain where Mekizdek broke a large four-cornered loaf, three feet square, perhaps entirely thick, into numerous little pieces which he divided among them. The loaf was of a brownish color that had been baked in the ashes. I saw that Melchizedek always went to them without a companion. Sometimes he bore the loaf quite lightly, as if it were merely floated above his hand, and again when he drew near to the mountain, I saw it as a weight upon his shoulders. I think he took this precaution on approaching them, that they might look upon him as merely a man. Still they met him with great reverence, prostrating before him. He taught them how to plant vines on Tabor. He also gave them all kinds of seeds, which they scattered in many parts of the country, and which now grow wild there. I saw these people every day cutting a piece off the loaf with the brown spades they used at work. They also ate birds, which flew toward them in great numbers. They had festival days, and they were familiar with the stars. They celebrated the eighth day with prayer and sacrifice, also some days in the course of the year. I saw them also making numerous roads through the still wild country to the places where they had laid foundations dug wells, and sowed seed. This they did that the people coming after them might, by following these roads, make settlements near the wells and fertile places prepared for them. I saw these three men often surrounded while at work by crowds of evil spirits, whom they could see. I saw these spirits, by prayer and the word of command, banished to swampy wastes. They departed instantly, and the men went quietly on with their work, clearing and purifying. They made roads to Cana, Megiddo, and Name, and in this way they prepared the birthplace of most of the prophets. They laid the foundations of Abomahula and Dothain, and dug out the beautiful baths at Bethulia. Melchizedek still scoured the country alone and as a stranger. No one knew where he lived. The three Seminenses were old, but still very active. The site of the Dead Sea and in Judea, cities already existed. There were some also further north, but none as yet in the central regions. The Seminenses dug their own graves, and sometimes stretched themselves in them. One made his near Hebron, another in Tabor, and the third in the caves not far from Safet. They were in a certain sense for Abraham what John was for Jesus. They purified the country, they prepared the land and the ways, they sowed good fruit, they brought water for the leader of God's people. But John prepared the heart for penance and a second birth in Jesus Christ. The Seminenses did for Israel what John did for the church. I have seen such men in other places also, where they had been introduced by Melchizedek. I often saw Melchizedek as he appeared in Palestine long before the time of Semiramis and Abraham, when the country was still a wilderness. He seemed to be laying it out, marking off and preparing certain districts. I saw him entirely alone, and I thought, 
What is this man doing here so early? There is not a human being in this place. I saw him near a mountain, boring a well. It was the source of the Jordan. He had a long, fine instrument which, like a ray of light, pierced the mountainside. I saw him in the same way opening fountains in different parts of the earth. Those early times, that is, before the deluge, I never saw the rivers gushing forth and flowing as they do now, but I saw volumes of water pouring down from a high mountain in the east. Melchizedek took possession of many parts of Palestine by marking them off. He measured off the site for the pool of Bethsaida, and long before Jerusalem existed, he laid a stone where the temple was to stand. I saw him planting in the bed of the Jordan the twelve precious stones, upon which the priest stood with the Ark of the Covenant at the departure of the children of Israel. He planted them like seeds, and they increased in size. I always saw Melchizedek alone, save when he had to busy himself with the uniting, the separating, or the guiding of nations and families. I saw that Melchizedek built a castle at Salem. It was rather a tent with galleries and steps around it, like the castle of Mansur in Arabia. The foundation alone was solid, for it was of stone. I think the core four corners, where the principal posts stood, were still to be seen even in John's time. It had only a very strong foundation of stone, which looked like a fortification overrun with verdure. John had there his little hut of rushes. Look, that tent castle was a resort for strangers and travelers, a kind of safe and convenient inn near the pleasant waters. Perhaps Melchizedek, whom I have always seen as the guide and counselor of the still unsettled races and nations, kept this castle as a place in which to harbor and instruct them. But even at that time, it bore some reference to baptism. This was Melchizedek's central point. From it, he started on his journeys to lay out Jerusalem, to visit Abraham, and to go elsewhere. Here also he gathered together and distributed families and peoples who settled in various places. All this took place previously to the offering of bread and wine, which, I think, was made in a valley south of Jerusalem. Melchizedek built Salem before he built Jerusalem. Wherever he labored and constructed, he seemed to be laying the foundation of a future grace, to be drawing attention to that particular place, to be beginning something that would be perfected in the future. Melchizedek belongs to the choir of angels that are set over countries and nations that brought messages to Abraham and the other patriarchs. They stand opposite the archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. 11. Job The father of Job, the great leader of the nations, was brother to Phaleg, the son of Heber. Shortly before his time occurred the dispersion of men at the building of the Babylonian Tower. Job was the youngest of thirteen sons. They dwelt north of the Black Sea near a mountain chain which was warm on one side and on the other cold and covered with ice. Job was forefather of Abraham. Abraham's mother was a great-granddaughter of Job, who had married into the family of Haber. Job may have still been alive at the time of Abraham's birth. He dwelt in different places, and his afflictions came upon him in three different abodes. Between the first and the second, there intervened a period of nine years' prosperity. Between the second and the third, seven years, and after the third, twelve years. His sufferings always befell him in a different dwelling place, but he never was so absolutely ruined as to have nothing left. 
he merely became quite poor when compared with his former circumstances. He always had enough left to pay all his debts. Job could not remain in his parents' house. His ideas and inclinations did not accord with theirs. Job adored in nature the only, the one only God, especially in the stars and in the change from day to night. He spoke frequently of God's wonderful works and offered to him a worship purer than that of those around him. He moved with his followers northward from the Caucasus to a very miserable swampy region. I think it is now inhabited by a nation distinguished by their flat noses, high cheekbones, and small eyes. Here Job first settled, and things went well with him. He gathered around him all kinds of poor, abandoned creatures who dwelt in caves and bushes, and who lived exclusively upon the raw flesh of birds and animals taken in hunting. Job was the first who taught them how to cook their food. With their help he dug up and cultivated the land. He and his people wore at that time but little clothing, and they dwelt in tents. Job soon found himself the owner of immense herds in this place, among them numerous striped asses and spotted animals. Once three sons were born to him at one birth, and three daughters at another. He had as yet no city here, but went around among his fields, which extended to a distance of seven leagues. No grain was cultivated in those marshy districts, but they raised a large sedge, which grows also in water, and whose pith was eaten either boiled or roasted. They dried their meat in holes dug in the earth and exposed to the sun, until Job taught them how to cook it. They planted many species of gourds for food. Job was unspeakably gentle, affable, just, and benevolent. He assisted all in need. He was, too, exceedingly pure and very familiar with God, who communicated with him through an angel or a white man, as the people of that period expressed it. These angelic apparitions were like radiant but beardless youths in long white garments that fell in heavy folds or strips around them. I could not distinguish which. They were girded, and they took food and drink. God consoled Job during his sufferings by means of these apparitions, and they passed sentence on his friends, his nephews, and his other relatives. He did not, like the nations around him, worship idols. They made for themselves images of all kinds of animals and adored them, but Job fabricated for himself a representation of the Almighty God, the figure of a child crowned with rays. The hands were held one above the other, and one was a globe upon which was depicted a little vessel riding on the waves. I think it was to represent the deluge of which, as well as of the wisdom and mercy of God, Job often spoke to his two confidential servants. The figure was portable and shone like metal. Job prayed before it and burned grain before it as a sacrifice. Smoke rose from the top of it as through a funnel. It was in this place that Job's first affliction befell him. The time that intervened between the different misfortunes recorded of him was not for him a time of peace. He always had to combat and struggle against the wicked races by whom he was surrounded. After his first affliction, he removed further up the mountain range, the Caucasus, where he again began anew, and where prosperity again followed him. He and his followers now began to clothe themselves less scantily, and their mode of life exhibited more refinement. From this, his second dwelling place, Job went, accompanied by a numerous train of followers, to Egypt, 
who at that time strangers called shepherd kings, and who were from his own native land, governed a part of the country. These shepherd kings were afterward expelled by an Egyptian monarch. Job's mission to Egypt was to conduct thither one of his own relatives, who was to be the bride of one of the shepherd kings. He took with him rich presents, about thirty camels, and many servants. When I saw him in Egypt, Job was a large, powerful man, of agreeable appearance. He had a yellowish-brown complexion and reddish hair. Abraham was fairer. The Egyptians were of a dirty brown. Job was not contented in Egypt. I used to see him looking back longingly toward the east, toward his fatherland, which lay more to the south than the most distant country of the three kings. I heard him complaining bitterly to his servants, telling them that he would rather live with wild beasts than with the people of Egypt. The horrible idolatry that everywhere prevailed in that country afflicted him. The Egyptians worshipped a frightful idol with an upraised head like that of an ox and broad open jaws. They heated it intensely and laid living children as offerings on its glowing arms. The shepherd king, for whose son Job conducted the bride into Egypt, would fain have kept him there, and he assigned to him Madariah as a dwelling place. The region was at that time very different from what it was at a later period when the holy family sojourned there. Still I saw that Job dwelt on the spot afterward occupied by them, and that the fountain of Mary was already shown him by God. When Mary discovered this well, it was already lined with stone, though still covered over. Job used the stone by the well for religious worship. By prayer he freed the country around his dwelling place from vile, wild and venomous animals. Visions referring to man's salvation were vouchsafed him here, and he saw, too, the trials in store for him. With burning zeal he exclaimed against the infamous practices of the Egyptians and their human sacrifices. I think these latter were in consequence abolished. When Job had returned to his native country, his second misfortune overtook him. And when, after twelve years of peace, the third came upon him, he was living more toward the south and directly eastward from Jericho. I think this country had been given to him after his second calamity, because he was everywhere greatly revered and loved for his admirable justice, his knowledge, and his fear of God. This country was a level plain, and here Job began anew. On a height which was very fertile, noble animals of various kinds were running around, also wild camels. They caught them in the same way as we do the wild horses on the heath. Job settled on this height. Here he prospered, became very rich, and built a city. The foundations were of stone, the dwellings were tents. It was during this period of great prosperity that his third calamity, his grievous distemper, overtook him. After enduring this affliction with great wisdom and patience, he entirely recovered, and again became the father of many sons and daughters. I think Job did not die till long after, when another nation intruded itself into the country. Although in the book of Job this narrative is given very differently, yet many of Job's own words are therein recorded. I think I could distinguish them all. Where the story says that the servants came quickly one after another to Job with news of his losses, it must be remarked that the words, and as he still spoke of it, signify, and while the last calamity was not yet effaced from the minds of men, etc., that Satan appeared before God with the sons of God and brought an action against Job is told in this way only for the sake of brevity. There was at the time much communication between the evil spirits and idolaters to whom they appeared in angelic form. 
In this way, Satan incited his wicked neighbors against Job, and they calumniated him. They said that he did not serve God properly, that he had a superfluity of possessions, and that it was very easy for him to be good. Then God resolved to show that afflictions are often only trials, etc. The friends who spoke around Job symbolized the reflections of his kinsmen upon his fate. But Job longingly awaited the Savior, and he was one of the ancestors of the race of David. He was to Abraham, through the mother of the latter, who was one of his descendants, what the ancestors of Anne were to Mary. The history of Job, together with his dialogues with God, was circumstantially written down by two of his most trusty servants, who seemed to be his stewards. They wrote upon bark and from Job's own dictation. These two servants were named respectively Hai and Ois, or Ois. These narratives were held very sacred by Job's descendants. They passed from generation to generation down to Abraham. In the school of Rebekah, the Canaanites were instructed in them on account of the lessons of submission under trials from God that they inculcated. Through Jacob and Joseph, they descended to the children of Israel in Egypt. Moses collected and arranged them differently for the use of the Israelites during their servitude in Egypt and their painful wanderings in the wilderness, for they contained many details that might not have been understood and which would have been of no service in his time. But Solomon again entirely remodeled them, omitting many things and inserting many others of his own. And so, this once authentic history became a sacred book made up of the wisdom of Job, Moses, and Solomon. One can now only with difficulty trace the particular history of Job, for the names of cities and nations were assimilated to those of the land of Canaan, on which account Job came to be regarded as an Edomite.